having got this far through the book of Romans, I'm sure that we can see why some people call this letter the greatest letter ever written. There is now a clear distinction with this chapter, a clear change, a clear division. We're moving from mostly teaching to instruction on how to live. We go mainly from what God has done to how we are called to respond to what God has done. So it's like from mind-stretching theology to its down-to-earth, concrete implications in everyday living. And the letters are often divided up like that. There's teaching, there's theology, there's wonderful truths, and then, and this is what you must do, this is how you must live. And there's very, very practical things that we're told in the second part of the letters very often. And that's what we need, because quite honestly, teaching that doesn't change the way we live is worse than useless. It's useless, but it's worse than useless. Teaching that doesn't change us is worse than useless. Because if I listen to teaching that doesn't change me, all as I've got then is less excuse than I had before for my bad behavior. I'd be better off not listening in the first place, because then at least I could say I didn't know. But if I'm being taught all the time and never change, that's worse than useless. But the teaching isn't left behind. Although this is clearly, and you must have thought that as we were reading it, how practical and down-to-earth the instruction is, although it's instruction on how to live, and kind of the first 11 chapters have been mainly teaching, the teaching isn't left behind. Because otherwise, this would then be just morality, wouldn't it? It would just be a list of rules about how to live a better life. It wouldn't be Christianity, it would be morality. And primarily, we're not a bunch of people trying to be nice and live better lives. That's not primarily what we are. Morality, even if it does change us, and our relationships and society, morality on its own wouldn't get us right with God. No matter how much we changed, no matter how much better society became, we wouldn't be right with God. That's what the cross is about. That's why we need the cross. That's why we need teaching. And anyway, morality often fails to meet its own aims. Just being moral, just teaching people to change and how they should live and what they should do and what they shouldn't do, often fails anyway, because people who focus on morality don't admit the real problem. You see, what, what people who focused on morality say, what moralists say is, that we're all okay, really. The big problem is education, social conditions, lack of opportunity. If only we get things right on that score, everything would be perfect. It's not what the Bible says. Those things are crucial. And those things have affected me and those things annoy me. And if I wasn't doing this this morning, I would be out there doing something about those other things. Yeah? Because education, social conditions, lack of opportunity in this country is a scandal in many ways. The class system and the division, don't get me going, you're getting me going. Don't get me going. Yeah, but, but, 
The Bible says the problem is in you. It's in your heart. Okay, things might have been better for you had you had a better education, had things been better for you at home, had you had more opportunity, things were a bit more equal. Your life might have been a bit nicer, but you'd have still been in a mess. You'd have still been a sinner. You'd have still needed the cross. You'd have still needed the invitation that you had presented to you twice this morning already from God to get to know him. So we're moving in this great letter. We're moving from pure teaching and doctrine about God and his grace and what he's done. We're moving to how we should respond and live as a result. And we need to do that. What I want to do first of all is just go through that, the, the instruction part of the chapter from verse 3 very quickly before we look at some of the challenges of verses 1 to 2. Now, I've got a series of books on Romans, and the one on chapter 12 has got 35 sermons in it. Somebody spent 35 weeks doing what I'm going to do in the next 20 minutes. No, it's not going to be 20 minutes. Sit back, relax. It's going to be a bit longer than that, I'm afraid. But, okay, this is what, he, this is what Paul says in verse 3. He starts with humility. It's a call to look at yourself, though, and weigh yourself up, and don't say, oh, I haven't got anything. You know, don't think you can be humble and say, oh, I'm just useless. Because if you say that, you're denying what God has said. God has said that if you're a believer and you're in the church, he's given you something, yeah? So we are to weigh ourselves up with humility, but honestly, but we don't weigh ourselves up based on the usual standards of how much money have you got, what's your status, what kind of education did you have, what school did you go to, what's your job, what's your social standing, all the things that people ask you when you go out. No, nothing to do with that. Weigh yourself up and work out what God has given you in his grace freely to benefit the church. Verses 4 and 8, we're not isolated individuals. We belong to the same body. Every one of us has a gift and a part to play. Nobody is left out. If you're feeling left out about this morning, we need to get you sorted out because you're not. Nobody is left out of that. That's what the Bible says. Now, it's easy to recognize some of the gifts lifted there, listed there. Leader, teacher, prophet. But serving is, is included. Encouraging, mercy. These things are included. And your gift might be in that area. You might never be at the front. You might never have a title and a badge and a name. But you have got a gift. You have got something you can offer, something you can give. And we all need to work that out and be involved. Verses 9 and 10, actions without love don't count. That can lead to hypocrisy. So we are to love. We're not only to do what we know to be right, but we are to be passionate in what we do, in our living, we're to care for each other. And remember, nobody's left out of this. We are to be zealous. It's not just some of us who get excited and, oh, well, that's the way they are. Everybody is to be zealous about what they do, not half-hearted in what we do for the Lord. We're to be joyful, patient, faithful. I'll go home now, I think, based on some of this. But that's what we are to be whilst sharing with those in need and being hospitable. Remember that many of those that this was written to, and this was written to people in small house churches, many of whom were slaves in a pagan and violent society, many of these people would be living in poverty, but they were being told to be hospitable. We're told to bless and not curse. We're told to be part of the community, at which we've been encouraged to be this morning again. 
and share in others' joys and sorrows, to live in harmony. Don't let pride make you avoid those with no standing in the community. We should be heading for those with no standing in the community, telling them they count. Don't let pride change that. And he thought, as if all that were not enough, just look at verse 17, 19. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge. Did you hear that? Or are you falling asleep already? It's warm, isn't it? Do not take revenge. That's what we're instructed here. The sinful, what has become natural desire to get our own back, yeah, we've got to, we've got to get rid of that. And we have got to trust God. I've heard people use this very verse, this very passage to say, yeah, God will get them. God's going to sort. Do you know? And they've twisted it round. We are to love our enemies, but trust in the righteous judgment of God that will come. And if you believe that, you will pray for people that have offended you, that they will repent and not face that judgment when it comes. And the end of, of it is, uh, towards the end, um, we're encouraged, and it's from Proverbs, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. And the concept there is, in, in being good to people that you should be naturally taking revenge with, if you're good to them, that's going to make them think. That might turn them round. That might bring them uh, to repentance. That's the idea. And it ends with, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, and if we allow that desire for revenge and anger and getting back at people, then we've been overcome by evil. But we are to overcome evil. And the whole, um, that's a summary of the whole instruction here. The whole practical instruction is uh, the evil that's in the world wants to swamp us, wants to overwhelm us. But we are to overcome it. We are to overcome evil. Now, that was 25 sermons. <laughs> that was 25 of the sermons from my book. But the idea was just to give us a glimpse, just to give us a flavor of the kind of life that we are called to live in response to all the great teaching we've heard from Neil uh, over the past weeks. Yeah? That's the kind of life we are called to. Now, what I want to do is just look at the, the instruction and challenges of verses 1 to 2. If that's the kind of life, what's the motive? Why, why should I? If that's the kind of life I'm called to, what is it that should motivate me? To live it. Well, Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, live this kind of life. God's grace is his free, undeserved, unearned, unsought favor. That's God's grace. The quality in God that means he is kind and generous and accepts people who deserve the opposite. That's what grace means. But God's mercy, God's mercy is his pity for our condition and for the mess we get ourselves into. God's grace means he will accept us even though we're unacceptable, but his mercy means he looks at us in the mess we're in and he feels sorrow for us. He looks on humanity in its rebellion, sinfulness, foolishness. He sees the mess we get ourselves into and he feels sorry for us and it moves into action. It's not just a feeling in God, but it is God in action for people who have messed up their lives 
and his world. That's what mercy is. God in action for people who mess up their lives. Do you know somebody who's messed up their life? Do you know somebody, some relative, some friend, somebody you care for, and they've just messed things up, and they don't deserve anything. They deserve to be in the mess they're in. Pray for them. Pray for God's mercy to be exercised towards them. This chapter begins with the word, therefore, therefore, in view of God's mercy. Therefore applies to chapters 1 to 11. Therefore, in the light of everything that's gone before, he's told us that we're all sinners. Whether we're Jews or Gentiles make no difference. We've broken God's law. We deserve his wrath. But we've been made, if we're believers, we've been made right by faith in what he's done in his son. Nothing about what we've done or achieved. Just in God's action in his son, we've been given peace. We've been brought under the reign of grace. We've got the Holy Spirit living within us. We've got the guarantee of a future. The only word that, that Paul can use to describe the future that is set and fixed and secure for you and I is glory. That's the future, glory. And we are part of his plan to restore the whole of his creation in the light of such mercy. In the light of such mercy. Be motivated to live the kind of life that Paul speaks of here. And just look at how practical this life is. Just look at the practicality of this life. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your, your soul, to offer your spirit. That's spiritual, isn't it? Offer your soul, offer your spirit, offer yourselves to God, to offer your bodies. Offer your Bodies, this is how practical it is, how down-to-earth this really is. We often fall prey to the awful, perhaps I shouldn't say we, I know I have in my life, the awful deceptive idea that there's a division between the spiritual life and the ordinary life, yeah? That you pray and you sing your songs and you read your Bible and all the rest of it, and then you go and do the mundane things of life, yeah? And, and all that kind of stays behind, and it doesn't really matter too much how you... That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. There is no division. There is no, there is no secular and sacred. There is no division between spiritual and normal. Yeah? The whole of our lives count. Every moment counts. Yeah? Every moment counts. We are to offer our bodies. And the, Paul uses the word body, I believe, because that's the way we live. That's the only way we can live, through our bodies. And God wants us to offer our bodies. Now, some of us, uh, we have people who come in wheelchairs. Some of us need frames. Some of us need sticks to walk with. Some of us wake up in pain every day. Some of us wish our bodies were a different shape. Some of us, well, there's all sorts of issues. <laughs> there's all sorts of issues, yeah? But it's our, it's our bodies because that's the way we live. These are the things, yeah? This is it. This is it. It's our bodies, our bodies, the way we live. Offer them, offer them to God. There isn't time for this, but I can't resist it. All right then. <laughs> Romans chapter 6 has got to be one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. It's got to be one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. Just, just turn with me to Romans chapter 6. We haven't got time to read it all. But it, 
but it, it's relevant to what we're doing here. And I'm, I think Paul uses the word bodies partly because of what he says here in Romans chapter 6. He says in verse 11, in the same way, he's just talked about, he's just talked about what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. The fact that he died to sin, he's now alive to, to God. Verse 11, in the same way, consider yourselves to be dead as far as sin is concerned. Now that you believe in Christ, Jesus, consider yourselves to be alive as far as God is concerned. So don't let sin rule in your body, which is going to die. Don't obey its evil longings. Don't give the parts of your body to serve sin. Don't let them be used to do evil. Instead, give yourselves to God. You've been brought from death to life. Give the parts of your body to him to do what is right. So verse 11, we had to count ourselves dead to sin, alive to God, as Jesus is through his death and resurrection. Yeah, Jesus came, he wasn't a sinner, he wasn't infected with sin. So in that sense, he didn't have anything to do with sin, but he came in a relationship to sin because he came to deal with it. So legally, he came in a relationship to sin, but he died to that relationship and now he's alive to God. Finished with it. Finished, finished, finished. Never again will Jesus have anything to do with this realm and area of sin. Count yourself. Count yourself the same way as Jesus to be dead to sin, but alive to God. Note, notice carefully that he doesn't say in verse 12, don't let sin, he says, don't let sin rule in your body. He doesn't say, don't let sin rule in you. He says, don't let it rule in your body or in your mortal body. I know this would take a long time to explain, but just accept it for now. Paul says, don't let it reign in you, because it can't reign in you, because you're dead and you're alive with Christ. But it can still work in your body, the way you live from day to day. Verse 13, he says, don't give the parts of your body to serve sin. Don't let them be used to do evil. Instead, give yourselves to God. You have been brought from death to life. Give the parts of your body to him to do what is right. Now, in that verse, it's kind of imbalanced. You know, has Paul got it wrong? There's a little imbalance there because if he'd have said, don't give yourselves to sin, give yourselves to God, which he says in the second part, that's balanced, isn't it? But he doesn't say that. He says, don't give the parts of your body to sin, but give yourselves to God. Yeah. Don't give the parts of your body to sin. Give your, what, what's the imbalance about, once again? Because Paul, Paul doesn't say, don't give yourselves to sin, because you can't. Because there is a sense, I know you're thinking, what is he talking about? How can this be true? There is a sense in which you are dead to sin. Yeah? You cannot give your, you can give yourself to God, you can't give yourself to sin if you're a believer. Yeah? But here's the thing. You can give the parts of your body because that's where the struggle is. That's where the temptations are. That's where the fight is in our body. Yeah? In our body. If you knew the mess I get into, if you knew the way I fail, if you knew the mistakes I make, if you knew the people I upset, and I'm fighting back tears at the moment, I am fighting back tears because that is true, yeah? I feel as if I should go through the door, go home and say, well, I tried, folks, but I can't do this. I can't. That's how I feel, yeah? The only thing that's keeping me in this spot at the moment is that I believe this. 
I believe Jesus lived, died, and rose again for failures like me. And I believe I'm not going to fail, ultimately, not because I am going to become some great hero, yeah, but because of what it says here, because of the teaching that I refuse to leave behind, yeah, I've come to the practical bit of the epistle, but I'm not leaving the teaching behind. Yeah? Jesus lived, died, and rose again. He's finished with sin. I belong to him. I finished with sin. Not in my body, not in my daily struggle, not in my fight from day to day. Yeah? I'm not over with it there. But even in that, Paul says, sin shall not have dominion over you. Verse 14, chapter 6. He doesn't say sin should not have dominion. He says sin shall not have, because God won't let it happen. God won't let it happen, okay? So the reason I've done all that is because Paul says, in the light of God's mercy to you, present your bodies. These weak, frail, struggling, painful, misshaped bodies, because that's what you live in. That's all you can do. And even though sin is there, well, because sin is there, because that's where the struggle and the fight is, Present it to God. Give it to God. Live for God. Yeah. That's the motive for this way of living. <clears throat> and then the extent of it. Just look at how, you know, it, it's practical, but it covers absolutely everything. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. What a phrase. As a living sacrifice. Now, Paul clearly wants us to think about the sacrificial system in the Bible, doesn't it? That's what he wants us to think about. And you will know that people used to bring animals, didn't they? They'd bring a lamb, they'd bring a goat, a bull, whatever they were supposed to bring. They would bring it, they would hand it over, knowing they weren't going to get it back, knowing that that was going to be given, it was going to die in their place, it was going to be used. The whole thing was going to be a sacrifice, an animal. But Paul makes a huge leap here. He doesn't say bring a dead animal, yeah? He says, as a living person, be a sacrifice. As a living person. And he's not talking about give yourself and die. He's not talking about a living person dying as a sacrifice. That'd be easy compared to what he's talking about. That would be easy. Yeah, that'd be a one-off job, wouldn't it? Yeah? What he's talking about is a living sacrifice. Not a sacrifice that's given once and it's gone, but a living. Give yourself, give your bodies as a living sacrifice. Somebody said about this, it can only mean, Paul can only mean the complete surrender of ourselves and putting ourselves unreservedly at God's disposal. That's all it can mean. Complete surrender. Every aspect of my life, everything to do with me, the mess even, everything, bring it to God and say, I am going to live. I am going to live for you. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to work. My leisure time, my relationships, when I meet people, how I live, when I wash the pots, yeah, or the dishwasher. Occasionally, I will try and use a dishwasher, I promise. But whatever I do, yeah, whatever I do, yeah, it's, me it's meant to be a living. Do you get the idea? A living, what a phrase, a living sacrifice. Yeah, and clearly, this is not a one-off big decision. It's not, you can't do this once. You cannot do this as a one-off big decision. Yeah, I, I, I am sad. I get, 
I get discouraged. I get physically, mentally, spiritually discouraged. I even get angry at times at the number of people I meet who, because of the way the gospel was presented to them, think that they made a decision once and now they're in. So that's it. I put my hand up. I went out in a meeting. I was prayed for. Yeah? I, I'm in. And the gospel was presented that way. Now, some of us have had our flu jabs. Yeah? Not all of us, I know. Some of us have had our flu jabs. And the idea is they have stuck a little bit, not much, but a little bit of flu in us, so that when the real thing comes along, our body's ready, prepared, and rejects it. Yeah? Do you know there are people who, because of the way the gospel was presented to them, when you try and reach them now, it's as if they've been inoculated against the gospel because they think they've heard it. They think they know it. They think they understand it. I know Jesus died. I know about forgiveness of sins. I know I've got to give myself to him. And I did it. And um, what difference did it make? You know? Are you with me? Yeah. Did Jesus, did Jesus ever say, put your hand up? Did Jesus ever say, come out to the front? Did Jesus ever say, sign a card? You're in now? Yeah. Do you know, if you read the life of Jesus, you wonder why ever anybody followed him. Things like, what do you want to follow me for? I haven't got anywhere to sleep tonight. That's what Jesus said to one person who said, can I come and follow you? Yeah. Jesus said, you want to follow me? Pick up your cross. And remember, this was first century. They were used to seeing people crucified. Pick up your cross if you want to follow me. Yeah. You want to follow me? Count the cost. Way up, what's it going to cost this? What am I going to have to give up? How is this going to affect my life? That's what Jesus said. Yeah. I'm not suggesting we put people off. Well, I am, aren't I, really? Yeah. <laughs> I am suggesting that we what am I saying? I am suggesting that we put people off. In the, in the light of God's mercy. Yeah. Present your bodies. Present your bodies as a living, a living daily sacrifice. Don't be conformed, Paul says. So the way to engage in this way of living, the, the practical way of doing it is don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You read the Bible, it's clear. There's two kingdoms, kingdom of the world, kingdom of God. Clear as day. You're in one kingdom, or you are in the other kingdom, yeah? You believe the gospel, you go from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. Now, the way one writer describes this, and, and it really helped me, and if you think about what it means to conform to something, if you conform to something, you're really becoming something that you're not. You're really giving in to something and saying, well, all right then, for the sake of whatever, I'll conform to what you say, yeah? You know, sometimes at work we have to sort of, well, you know, this is what I think, this is what I prefer to do, but, you know, I'll, I'll conform for the sake of, yeah? So when you conform, and this is how one writer puts it, when you conform to something, you do things you would not otherwise do, or you're not conforming to it. You are it, aren't you? You're part of it, yeah? So living in a way that is not representative of our inner life. That's conforming, yeah? Living in a way that is not representative of our inner life. Paul is saying, you've been born again. 
You've been changed. You're out of the kingdom of darkness. You're in the kingdom of God's son. The Holy Spirit lives in you. That's who you are, yeah? This world with its pressure, this world with its adverts, this world with its temptations, this world with its godless view of life, with its godless ways, with its evil, senseless, uh, ridiculous things and values, yeah? Wants to pressure you into conforming. Doesn't want you standing out. Doesn't want you being different. And what Paul says is, don't be conformed. Be who you are in Christ. Let who you are stand out in Christ. Don't conform to this world. Another famous translation of this is J.B. Phillips, who said, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Yeah? Don't let the word world squeeze you into its mold and misshape you, because you've been created, recreated to be like Jesus. That's the shape you're to take on the life of Jesus. But the world doesn't like that. The world doesn't like that. The world's got another mold that it wants to squeeze you into. Don't be conformed. Be transformed in your mind. And that's where it's got to be. It's not in our emotions. Emotions are incredibly powerful. They can be overwhelming. You can make decisions based on your emotions, can't you? I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying that, <clears throat> that they're overwhelming at times. But Paul doesn't address our emotions. He, he addresses our mind. Yeah, It's not your emotions. It, and it's not even your behavior. Yeah, It's not your behavior at, at, at this particular point. Um, because behavior, changing in behavior, can lead to a reformation of your life without a change in your character, can't it? Yeah. So what he's saying is, in your mind, where the Holy Spirit is at work if you're a believer, then let that transforming work of his continue yeah let that transforming work continue don't let the world interrupt that and alter that uh, just quickly on to the last thing the result of this way of living the result is you will be able to test and approve what god's will is you will know the will of god and there, there are two ways in which the will of god is spoken in the bible there is his sovereign will the things that will happen because God has de decided it and declared it. In Psalms, it says, uh, comparing God to idols, it says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. God's will will be done. Yeah? Even in this mad world of ours, God's will will be done. And there are, there are massive questions and difficulties about that. I know. Yeah? But we can't know the secret will of God. We cannot know that until it happens. When it happens, you know. And then you've got a problem figuring out how can that be the will of God. Well, it happened. Yeah? So God's secret will, we cannot know. Okay? But God's revealed will, we can know God's revealed will. The things he has clearly told us. We've got Ten Commandments, haven't we? He has revealed the way he wants things to be. And there are very, the, the New Testament's full of clear instructions. One example is, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Yeah? That's the will of God, that we give thanks in all circumstances. Now, God's secret will, that I don't know what it is, and I can't, can't work it out, and I'm not even meant to know it. Yeah? That's going to happen whether I believe it or not, whether I work for it or not, whatever I do, that's going to happen. Yeah? But God's revealed will sometimes doesn't happen because I don't believe it. Is this making any kind of sense? Yeah. 
Now, I, I believe when Paul says here that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. He's not talking about us getting messages all the time. Now, this gets complicated because sometimes God does break in. Sometimes God breaks in with a word and with a prophecy, and, but that's not everyday stuff. This is everyday stuff. Are you with me? This is everyday stuff. This is having a transformed mind that is in tune uh, with God's word and, and seeking to understand God's word and seeking to put it into practice. And what Paul is saying is, as you live like this, as you live like this, you will see that what God has said is good and acceptable and perfect. It's the right thing. It's the best thing. It's what you will want. Read Psalm 119, and that'll say it far better than I can. The way the psalmist repeats and repeats how much he delights in God's will and what God wants and what God says. Read, read it over and over again. He says how amazing it is because he had a transformed mind. Yeah, and he could see God's will. You, you have glistened. Wonderfully, amazingly well, and I'm really grateful to you. We are called to a way of life that is different. It can only be lived as we apply the teaching that we have been listening to for the past weeks. That's the only way it can be lived, yeah, as we apply that teaching. Our motive for doing that is God's mercy that has been poured out on us. This way of life is so practical that our very bodies and everything we do with those bodies is to be involved. It covers so much that it can only be described as becoming a living sacrifice. But we can only do it as we resist the power of this world to make us conform and to continue to submit to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And as we do that, we will say, God's will is right. God's will is good. God's will is perfect. That's the way I want to live. If you don't remember anything else, just remember this. You are not called to give a sacrifice. You are not called to make a sacrifice. You are called to be a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Amen.